Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our Heaven series, and we're going to be turning in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, A New Heaven and a New Earth. I wonder what you imagine when you think about going to heaven. In a recent conversation with a fellow believer, she told me that as a little girl hearing about heaven, she found the idea most unattractive. It seemed to her like a very long church service. And truth be told, many of the popular images of heaven that people have make heaven seem like an uninteresting place. When you get past the idea of endless golf courses and sitting on clouds playing harps, it's amazing that people actually think about heaven at all. Many people imagine a static existence where nothing new is ever invented or discovered, in which perfection is but a static repeating of the same thing for all of eternity. And whenever movies portray heaven, it seems like everything in heaven is white. The floor, the clothes, the walls, the furniture, and even the white mist or clouds that covers the place about to everyone's ankles. Where's the color? Where are the rocky mountains and the great waterfalls and the endless variety of creatures and the deserts and the lakes and the eagle crying in the sky? Indeed, every popular description I have heard of heaven makes this world seem so much more attractive than that one. Isn't it any wonder that so few of us dream of it and long for it? Furthermore, some of the things that get said about heaven in theological circles should leave us all scratching our heads and wondering what on earth we're talking about. In one famous systematic theology, the author writes, while heaven is both a place and a state, it is primarily a state. Imagine someone talking that way about somewhere on earth. Here's an example. I'm from Vancouver, and Vancouver is both a place and a state of mind, but primarily it's a state of mind. Now, if I talked that way, you'd be well served to wonder what in the world I was talking about. So before we talk about anything else, perhaps we should address the most basic of all questions. Is heaven a real place? In order to answer that, let's consider the ascension of Jesus. After he had been raised from the dead, not in a state of mind, but in a real physical body, he spent 40 days with his disciples, eating with them and teaching them, and even on one occasion preaching to more than 500 at one time. After that time, according to Acts 1.9, and when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. You can imagine Jesus and his disciples probably on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is giving the disciples their last instructions. He tells them not to leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes on them, and then after he finishes speaking, he doesn't disappear or go into some immaterial state called heaven. He physically begins to rise into the air, and he keeps rising, and he gets smaller in their eyes until a cloud takes him out of their sight. Now, what are the disciples to think after this? They would think exactly what you would think. He's not dematerializing into another state. He is physically traveling to another place. Listen to what the next verse says, Acts 1.10. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus that was taken up from you into heaven. Again, not to repeat myself, but to emphasize the point. The disciples would have thought he is physically going from one location to another, no different than we would do if we got into an airplane and traveled somewhere. It's hard not to think about this and think about a place 
whether within our dimension or some other dimension, I suppose, but a real place in our space-time universe where Jesus now lives in his physical resurrection body, waiting for a time when he will return from that very place. Now, I'm not saying that you could take a spaceship to get there, because the location of that place might be, as I said, in some other dimension, but the description taken at face value is of a physical geographic location. I think that the place where this is is unknown to us. It cannot be perceived by our physical senses as they now are, but it's a place nonetheless, as much as Vancouver, Winnipeg, or Toronto, or Montreal are real places. Now, before I go on, let me clear away some difficulties that my hearers might entertain. We know that because Jesus is fully God, that an essential attribute of being fully God is that he is omnipresent, meaning he is present to all places at all times. That's why, for instance, he could say to Nathaniel in John 1 that before Philip spoke to you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Even in his incarnation, Jesus never stops being the ever-present, omnipresent God. But in his humanity, and even in his raised humanity, he is physically and bodily present somewhere in a real place. Now consider Jesus' words to his disciples, spoken during the Last Supper, recorded in John 14, verses 2 to 3. He begins, In my Father's house are many rooms, or many dwelling places, or many mansions. He refers to a place where a traveler might spend a night, or a wealthy individual might have a villa in which he lived. Anyone hearing those words had real, concrete images of a place where they would remain. Let's keep reading. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Notice I don't go to prepare a state of mind for you, but an actual physical place that exists somewhere in a real location. Now, once we get a picture of an actual physical place, that heaven, even right now, is a geographic location, even though we don't know where it is, we know that it is the place of God's dwelling, and that this place of God's dwelling will somehow be prepared and ready to receive its inhabitants at the time of the final judgment. What else do we know? Well, we know that this place is not just called heaven. Interestingly enough, and fascinatingly enough, the Bible speaks of a new heaven and then a new earth. Listen to the promise of God made through Isaiah the prophet. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered. That was in Isaiah 65, verse 17, but Isaiah repeats this again in the next and the last chapter of his book. In Isaiah 66, verse 22, he says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Now, here's the promise that the new heavens and the new earth will endure forever, and also that God's people will endure forever there. So is the new heavens and the new earth the place where we dwell eternally? Now, before we answer that, notice that the phrase new heavens and new earth is not only used in Isaiah, Peter also uses it in 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, that is our eternal hope. And finally, the phrase is also used in Revelation 21, verse 1, where John takes us to the scene after the great judgment of the nations. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
Please notice that the words, the sea was no more, has led some Bible teachers to imagine that in the world to come, there will be no oceans. Well, perhaps, but remember that in the world in which John lived, the sea presented an uncrossable barrier. Most shipping was done within sight of land so that sailors would keep fixed navigational reference points. I think what John is presenting us with is different than our current experience. We know that if we wanted to travel from the earth to heaven, we have no way of arriving there. There is a sea, an uncrossable barrier between us and the dwelling place of God. But in the time to come, the great sea, the the great expanse that separates heaven from earth is removed. The barrier is gone. But that leads us to the first phrase, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What can those lines mean? And where is our dwelling place? Let me start with the, the second of them, the, the new earth. Part of the puzzle is answered in 2 Peter chapter 3. In verse 6, Peter speaks about the world that once existed before the flood, and in Peter's words, that world was deluged with water and it perished, or that world died, he said. And then in the next verse, in verse 7, he says, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And then in verse 11, he speaks of the heavenly bodies passing away with a roar. They are burned up and dissolved. Now, from this has come a debate among Bible teachers. Does this mean that this earth will be completely destroyed, much like a house would be destroyed by a fire? So when you build a new house in the end of that, you'd notice that it is an entirely new house, not related to the old one. Now, that's an important question when considering heaven. And when we come back, I hope to give a biblical description of where we will live for all of eternity. Just a reminder that our first 2017 issue of Truth in Life magazine is available this month, so you'll want to subscribe now to ensure you receive your very own copy of our bi-monthly ministry magazine. The February issue is focused on relationships. How do we honor God in our relationships? And for 2017, we'll have two new featured articles, one based on your questions arising from our new Truth in Life Today program, and another by Pastor Ray Duick, sharing a pastoral response to the specific theme of the current magazine. These articles, along with regular features from Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, In Doubt's Isaac Dagno, our Bible reading plan, and so much more. So don't miss out. Request while quantities last. You can receive your free subscription of Truth and Life by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. There is a debate among some Bible teachers about whether this earth will be destroyed or renewed. One Bible teacher said, God hangs on to this fallen original creation and salvages it. He refuses to abandon the work of his hands. In fact, he sacrifices his own son to save his original project. That would mean that this earth is not temporary. Paul seems to indicate exactly that when in Romans 8, verse 21, he writes, The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Just like we are redeemed, so also will this earth be redeemed. 
But what of Peter's vision of the heavenly bodies passing away with a roar, being burned up and dissolved? That seems to indicate that, as we have all heard it said before, it's all going to burn, baby. And yet, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, and I'm reading from Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then two verses later, in 5, verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, as if it's our destiny to inherit the earth. Remember the promise of God found in Numbers 14.21 that the earth shall be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Is that the eternal future of the earth? How do we put these two seemingly contradictory strains together? See, I want you to imagine Jesus' body stepping out of the tomb. It's a new body, or is it his old body? Well, on the one hand, it has to be a new body because his old body was tortured and mutilated and killed, and he steps out of the tomb, and as he does so, he does so not in weakness, but in glorious strength. But on the other hand, it has to be his old body because where is his old body? Well, it was raised. It didn't dematerialize. It didn't stay rotting in the tomb. Furthermore, he still bears the marks in his hands and feet from his crucifixion when he proves he is alive. But on the other hand, it is a new body for the lines of pain and weakness and subjection to sorrow. Well, that's all gone. And that's why the disciples both recognize him. And at the same time, they struggle to know if it really is him. In truth, the body of Jesus has been transformed into a body that is not subject to death or to dishonor, but is an eternal perfect body. And that, I think, is the same image that we should employ when we think about the new earth. In Romans 8.21, we are told that the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption, that is, from the effects of sin. And then in verse 23 of the same chapter, we're told that not only the creation, but we also will experience the redemption of our bodies. So ask the following question. When Christ returns, imagine the believers who are on earth. In an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, they are transformed. Their earthly bodies are redeemed and are made new and are made perfect, never to suffer decay. But what of believers who have already died and were buried or who have had their bodies utterly destroyed? And I'll discuss more of that in the next program, but it is clear that Christ raises up the bodies of those who have died and in some way reunites them with their souls. And since Romans says that both our bodies and the earth will be redeemed, it seems to me that even when this earth is destroyed by fire, as Peter describes it, God raises the earth again, redeems the earth, delivers the earth from its bondage to decay, just as he did with the dead and destroyed body of Jesus. Okay, there will be a new earth, which will be this earth, but transformed in such a way that the curse, the fall, the limitations, and the things that bring death and alienation from God are now gone. But what are the new heavens? Is heaven the dwelling place of God to be renewed? That would seem impossible because heaven never was subject to decay. And those of you who heard me in an earlier broadcast heard me speak about 2 Corinthians 12 verse 2. Paul can speak about the same word, heaven, and use it in three different ways. He can mean heaven as in the atmosphere over our heads, or he can mean heaven as in space or the cosmos. And finally, he can mean heaven to refer to the dwelling place of God. Not only does Paul speak that way, but all other Bible writers do as well. 
So when Revelation 21 verse 1 speaks of a new heaven, we should note that he is not speaking of the dwelling place of God. Rather, he speaks about the cosmos, the heavens in the sense of what we call space, the sun, moon, stars, planets, and everything else that's involved. So when John says he saw a new heaven and a new earth, he means he saw a new universe or a new created order or a renewed, redeemed created order. And when he says there was no longer any sea, he means that the barrier that keeps this created order from the dwelling place of God is removed, and there is a clear accessibility from this world to the very throne room of God. Let's continue to read Revelation 21, going on to verse 2. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Suddenly we see the next new thing, a new Jerusalem. Well, what can that mean? We know that David captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites in around 1010 BC, and it became the capital of the people of God. The name Jerusalem means city of peace, but the city has been anything but that. One website that I visited recently, but I've been unable to verify it, said that the city has been destroyed twice, attacked 52 times, and captured and recaptured 44 times. Well, even if the number isn't exactly right, it sounds about right. And yet, this is the city that both Psalm 46 and 87 call the city of God. Psalm 48 calls it the joy of the whole earth. Nehemiah, Daniel, and Isaiah call it the holy city. Psalm 50 calls it the perfection of beauty. Psalm 46 verse 4 calls it city of God and the habitation of the Most High. That's because the temple was built there, and it became the center of worship. It is also the city where our Lord was crucified and became our substitute Passover lamb. But the city also has an eternal destiny. According to Hebrews 12, verse 22, we're told, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You know, that vision of Jerusalem is a vision, as John will later describe it, as the city of God, which has no temple, for the Lord himself is no longer veiled in that place, but whose light so illumines it that it needs no sun, having a radiance of the glory of God, with beautiful ornate walls built of jasper, while the city is pure gold that is as clear as glass. Now, this holy city, which is everything that the old Jerusalem hoped for but never became. This new holy city comes down and touches the earth. In some fashion, the boundaries between heaven and earth have been breached. And just in case we're still wondering if this is an actual physical place, the exact dimensions of the place are given. I've always remembered its dimensions this way. It's about as long as from Vancouver to Winnipeg and as wide and as high as well. And if you can't get that image, it's about 1,400 miles long, wide and high. And if you're still struggling with heaven and the life to come, and do we live in heaven or do we live on earth, let me help you. Listen to Ephesians 1 verse 10. God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, says Paul. Think about it this way. When Jesus became a man, he never ceased to be God. He is fully God and fully man. Now then, heaven is the dwelling place of God. Earth is the dwelling place of man. Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, forever brings together heaven and earth. 
Yes, we live on the new earth for eternity, an earth with sights and sounds and smells and mountains and plains and waterfalls and eagles crying in the heavens, a real physical dwelling place. But the new Jerusalem has come down to earth, and the gates of that city are never closed, and the righteous nations bring their glory into the city. I see a life to come where all the nations of the earth, redeemed by Christ's blood, live life with joy and no sorrow, no dying, no pain, but a real physical life with genuine human culture, replete with food and creativity, all for the glory of God. And in their joy of what the Father has done, regularly enter into the city of God, dwell there, and worship the great King there. John, I think the message you offer today is a liberating message for a lot of people because a stereotypical idea of what heaven is and it doesn't seem very attractive. And yet heaven is a very physical place, something we should be looking forward to. Yeah, so much of who we are is physical. Um, Yes, I know we have thoughts which are non-physical. We have a desire for God, which is, you know, really not to be defined in physical terms. But there are so much of our life is physical. Our creativity is physical. Uh, the way in which you and I are you know, dialoguing with each other comes through physical voices. We regard each other physically. I mean, all these things are in fact the case. So when people die, sometimes they believe they're going to be stripped of all of this. And so they're going to be made bare and left with nothing. And that, I think, is a part of our fear of death. But when we read the biblical account, resurrection of Jesus, the physicality of heaven, suddenly we begin to recognize this is what we were created for. And I I think this really does set the heart on fire. We do rejoice. And we don't get lost in this whole thing. Do we still become unique beings or is this sort of like a a cosmos thing and we all become this this blur of images? I'm, I'm not sure. We do become or stay uniquely Ben, uniquely John? Yes, uniquely Ben, uniquely John, uniquely who we are. I mean, this is not a Hindu ideal in which we lose, you know, in Hindu thought systems, we lose our individual identity and are assumed into the great oneness of all things. That's not what we are told. We are told as Christ was raised from the dead so that his followers saw him, so we also are raised from the dead, and we interact with the world that God has created, you know, with what I had said, the real sights and sounds and smells of heaven, the waterfalls, the eagles crying in the heavens, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's what we look forward to. The, the new creation will make the old creation not to seem sick and second class, but the new creation will be perfect in every way. A wonderful word. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's happening. After a two-year break, Back to the Bible Canada is inviting you to join us February 2018 for a Celebration Caribbean Cruise. One week of cruising pristine waters, visiting beautiful island vistas, and most importantly, joining the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, including Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Phil Calloway, special musical guests, and new friends from coast to coast in a time of reflection, refreshment, worship, and fellowship with God's people. These events have been incredibly popular, so don't hesitate to reserve your spot now and sail the Caribbean with Back to the Bible Canada. For cruise and registration information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. 
And an important reminder to all of our Back to the Bible Canada listeners, no ministry funds are used to facilitate vacation events. The entire cost of the event is met exclusively by those who participate.